All right, so we're continuing our journey through the Passion of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we're going to find ourselves at Gethsemane. And uh, Gethsemane is, a, is um, a very interesting passage for a number of reasons. It brings up, for most of us, if you think about it for long, a whole host of questions about the person and work of Christ. One of those questions that we'll get to and probably not answer so that you will sufficiently be satisfied with what I say about it, um, when he cries out in agony, Lord, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. What's he really asking there? And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about a couple of possibilities, but really what we don't want to lose track of is what really is the overarching theme and point of what is going on in Gethsemane and subsequently what will happen on Calvary. And so um, we have an opportunity this morning to witness one of, I think, the most beautiful and really probably the first time that we really see the humanity of Christ on full display. Um, and the author of Hebrews would tell us that that should be a great comfort to us. And so, while it will bring up questions, and it should, because we should think about these things, let it not carry you away from what is the main overarching theme of this series, which is that God is sovereign over all things, and he weaves all things into his plan. We saw that certainly last week when Satan enters into Judas. And I want to make one comment about that that I think I failed to make last time. One of the reasons that that is in the text is to show us that what is happening is on a cosmic scale. And it is not just an issue of sour grapes on just Judas's part or even sour grapes on just the Pharisees' part. No, this was something that was standing almost outside of time, if you will, though Satan is not eternal. But it was on a larger scale that this thing was unfolding. And so for, for, the, for Luke to tell us that detail, the main point was to say, remember, this war is not local. It's cosmic. Beautifully, we saw that Jesus had handled even the details, though, through the sovereignty of the Lord. He decided where they would meet. And one of the things that he didn't do was tell Judas where they were going to meet. You know why he didn't? Because his hour had not yet come. And he didn't want Judas trying to jump the gun. And so it was held from Judas as to where they would meet. And so that sets us up for this. Does that mean that Jesus is avoiding Gethsemane? Is it that he's avoiding the cross? No, actually what we're going to see is he very intentionally goes to a place that he always goes, offering himself up to be taken. Because it was his decision, not Judas's. It was his decision in the will of the Lord, not Satan's. And so again, what we, I hope that we will see this morning is who is in control. And I hope that you had the courage to wrestle with that question. And you need to continue to wrestle with it because it continues to plague you. It continues to change and affect how you live. If you don't stop periodically and say, who is in con who or what, should be who, but who or what is in control of my life at this point? Because it changes, doesn't it? If you live long enough, the tyranny of the urgent sometimes creeps in on you, or the tyranny of fear, or the tyranny of security, or the tyranny of the materialistic, or the tyranny of your own self. It rises and falls, doesn't it? And so periodically we need to take time to stop and realize who it is that is sovereign. This is one of the reasons that I argue that God so graciously gives us the Sabbath because it is uniquely on that day where we declare his goodness and, and that we step back and realize who is in fact in control. Amen? 
So, this is the Lord's Day, and this is for us Christians essentially the Sabbath, and so that's what we want to recognize and realize this day. And so continue to wrestle with that question. It will come up often. So as we begin this morning, I have a question for you, and this is somewhat rhetorical, so don't yell out your answer, because this is, it may not be good. Um, what is the worst thing that you've ever faced knowing what was going to happen? What was the, I mean, for those of you, and again, I'm not looking for a show of hands, who've ever been caught in the act of doing something you were not supposed to be doing and knew that you were going to have to then face the consequences for having done so, remember that feeling of trepidation and fear that was in you. Or you got caught in a situation maybe at work and you popped off and said something you should not have said to the person you should not have said it to, and you got that call that said, hey, meet me in the office in five minutes. Remember the dread that you had taking that walk. Or um, if you have, like I did, um, my uncle Randy, who died with Lou Gehrig's disease, having to walk the hall to his room knowing that each time was one more time closer to not walking that hall ever again. And sometimes knowing that as you got off the elevator, you just stood in the hall and couldn't make the walk and just got back on the elevator and went home because you couldn't bear one more time to watch what was happening that you couldn't stop. So there are moments in all of our lives where we have had to face something knowing that the consequences were not going to be good. And they range from simple to very, very, very difficult. Another time, I, um, Susan was pregnant with our third child. And um, we just moved to Macon, and, and I couldn't go with her to the first ultrasound. And I knew something was wrong, and I knew that it was a grace of God to know that it was wrong. And when the phone rang, I knew it was her number. I knew what I was going to have to hear. And I cannot tell you the level of dread and sorrow before I even heard the words and she said that there is no heartbeat. I have blighted ovum. And so knowing that is, there's just something just incredibly difficult and painful that I think we all understand when we are going to face something of great gravity and great sorrow. In that, I think we have but a very, very small flicker of Christ in Gethsemane. Of Christ who knew what he was going to have to bear, but as the author of Hebrews would say, for the shame that was set before him, he endured the cross because of the joy that he would have in the redemption of God's people. Obviously, that's a paraphrase on my part. But what a beautiful thing that he could face something so horrible, so difficult, that he knew the weight of that he knew the magnitude of at some level, far beyond what we would know, and to do that as a perfect man. Think about trying to do something like that as a flawed man or woman. Now, it's even worse when you have to do it when you're perfect in some respects and know you're not guilty and know that you've got the power possibly as the God-man to make it go another way, potentially, but you can't divide the Trinity. So understand that for him, the knowledge of what was coming was severe. And amazing beyond anything we could comprehend. And praise God that he's done it for us. And this brings us to the call to worship. 
Why in the world would I choose what seemingly sounds like such a dark text? Well, the fact that God draws his sword means that he is just and that sin cannot go unpunished. He is not a grandfatherly figure who just says, well, you kids are so cute. You're always just goofing around and messing up. And it's just, I just love watching you guys get it together. No, he draws his sword because he must be just. And it says in that text that by virtue of him drawing his sword, that we would know he is the Lord. So, as odd as it may seem, we gather this morning as we look at Gethsemane, Gethsemane, praising God for having drawn the sword on Christ alone. So that we, by faith alone, through grace alone, could come to be his children. And it is exhausted in Christ. For some of you, you may say, well, I think Christ maybe took care of most of my stuff, but man, there's some stuff I've done, dude. I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure it got covered at the cross. Well, I'm here to tell you, if it didn't, you're in trouble. Um, because you don't want to face the Lord with the dread of knowing that the sword is raised against you. Far worse than ever having to show up at the principal's office or your boss's office or meet with your wife after you've said something really, really dumb uh, and having to reconcile that or meet with your children after you've done something really, really dumb and try to make that right as well. This is far, 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 far greater as Gethsemane will show us. And so the humanity of Christ is beautifully on display here. Now, let's open with this quote from Donald MacLeod. Now, Donald MacLeod is a Scottish theologian um, who is, I think, a very creative thinker, um, interesting guy in that he preached both in English and Gaelic and would oftentimes preach five times a week, two of which were in full Gaelic. So he's pretty smart, I guess. It counts for something, right? But I love this quote um, from his book, The Person of Christ. And for those of you who are looking for a wonderful single volume on the person of Christ, uh, if you have kind of a theological bent, this is a, one, of, one of the better books, I think, that's been written on it. He says this, what Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he, the last Adam, would stand before God, that God, answering for the sin of the world. Indeed, identified with the sin of the world, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it, terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation lovingly. Now, there's a lot within that quote that could cause you to ask some questions. Let me clarify a couple of things. What Christ did know is that the Trinity would not be separated or fractured. That what he was struggling with in his humanity ultimately was not the weight of sin itself, but the separation that it would bring from God the Father, with whom he had known such a great and loving relationship from eternity past. And that is instructive to us because for some of us, Unfortunately, I think we see salvation as the get-out-of-jail-free card. That we get out from under all of the guilt and the shame and the weight of the sin merely. No, the joy of salvation is not just that, although I think it is important to be free of shame and guilt. Amen? But primarily what salvation does is it restores us to God the Father so that we become sons and daughters of the Most High, heirs to all of the spiritual blessing. 
See, if all you want to do is be free from your shame and your guilt, that's a very selfish thing. And actually is not actually consistent with the whole story. And so I want for us, my great desire for us is to see the joy in becoming the children of God. And being able to dwell with Him. Being able to access Him as Paul taught us from Romans 5. It's not just that our justification makes us right. It gives us access to the very throne of grace. Hebrews tells us so that we could go and receive whatever it is that we would need in a time of trouble. Beautifully, we're going to see Christ do exactly that in Gethsemane. Note where he turns here in just a moment. So if, we, if you would, turn to the text, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 44 is where we'll start. And this is where Jesus' humanity is displayed so beautifully in his prayer. And the big idea that I want us to all have here and walk away with is that Jesus Christ in his humanity teaches us the power of prayer in facing temptation and seeking to be obedient to the will of God. Let me, let me say that again. Jesus Christ in his humanity teaches us the power of prayer in facing temptation and seeking to be obedient to the will of God. Remember, there's three things that I would really like for our church to be identified with. One is generosity. We have a chance to display that in our willingness to give to faith promise giving. Two, I want us to be known for being missional. We have some wonderful opportunities coming up through some of these banquets and some of the organizations that are offering the, the, the out-of-darkness training that's coming up. All of these things give us an opportunity to be missional. And, and help out some of the other organizations that are doing great things. It doesn't all need to be from within. And lastly, the thing that I want us to be known for is that we are a praying church. Because a praying church is a dependent church. A praying church is a protected church. And I think it's an area in which I know personally I'm incredibly weak and I want to see us all grow. And that's, this sermon this morning, I hope, will help do that for us. Turn to the text and hear God's word this morning. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 says this. And he, being Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, being Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like the great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, straight away, we see that Jesus is going somewhere that they had often gone. Now, this tells us a couple of things. One, that Jesus was often a man of prayer. Now, that's an interesting thing if you are the God-man. Why would you need to pray? Pray for what? Well, is he just doing it to be instructive to us, like saying, look, I don't really need this, but you guys do, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it just to hopefully get you guys, you know, stir you up a little bit. No, in his humanity, there was a significant need for relationship with the Father. Now, if someone who is perfect evidences the need to pray, how much more you and I who are not yet perfect? 
How much more should it be regular for you and I who don't yet have it all together as it were? And so Jesus is exhibiting yet again an opportunity to teach us of the grand need for the Father amongst us all. And so notice the moment at which he's going. Remember his words from the last Passover. I have long desired to have this meal with you before I suffer. So he's responding to that suffering that's coming by turning now to his Father the only one who can comfort him, the only one who can encourage him and equip him and strengthen him for the task that is to come. The other thing that we notice is that it's at night and it is probably uh, not the wisest decision if you're trying to run from Judas and the Pharisees and everybody else. If you're not looking to get caught, would you go to the same place that you've always gone? No, probably not. Um, But if in your willingness to submit to the will of the Father, and you know that the Father is sovereign, why would you run? So he's placing himself in a position to be arrested. And he takes some disciples with him, and he does something very beautiful. He shows his care for them even before he turns to the Father himself, he tells them to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. Now, it would be good for you sometime this week to go back and read Luke chapter 21 because it's going to give you a a full breadth of what it was that he was warning them not to get into. It's uh, in some places called the Olivet Discourse. And he's telling them all of the things that they could possibly descend into and he's warning them about what's coming and really what goads not to kick against. What he's teaching them is that God is, in fact, fully and absolutely sovereign. Which is why they would need to pray, because in and of themselves, they cannot save themselves. Because one of the things he tells them is, you will be taken. And you will come before kings and governors and courts. And you will be tempted to formulate your answers before the questions are asked, but don't do it. I will give you the words you need to say in the moment when you need to say them. How comforting ought that to be to a people like us who are so often, think about it, what is one of your greatest fears as a Christian? That somebody's going to come up to you and ask you the question you can't answer and that you would look like an idiot. That is, I mean, if we, we file, I hear it all the time when you talk to people about why don't you share your faith or, or there's any discussion about evangelism or missionality or whatever it may be, almost categorically what comes up is, well, I just don't feel confident in giving answers. Now, on one side, there's a fairness to humility, right? I don't think you should go blazing in with your end times view and think that you've got it all worked out and, or um, some sort of explanation of the sovereignty of God that shows no recognition of the mystery of said sovereignty or a discussion on evil or suffering, right? I mean, those things should not be walked into lightly. I get it. But are we not to have an answer for the hope that is within us? Are we to withhold from those who are asking the questions about the meaning of life and we're unwilling to speak at all because we're worried about what we're going to look like? The Bible already told you. To the world, yes, you look like an absolute idiot. You're a fool. 
for Christ, as it were. And so get that out of your minds. It's already been done. The moment that you say you believe in God in our current culture, you automatically are relegated south of the bronies, if you know what bronies are. They're the grown men who dress up in my little pony outfits. I mean, really, there's a documentary on Netflix. I don't encourage you to watch it necessarily. It'll, it'll actually give you less faith in the future of our country, the world. Um, but it, think about it. I mean, think about within the, anybody who knows anything about the academy, what, what do they tell you not to let people know? Don't let them know you're a Christian. In the arts, are Christian artists taken seriously? We don't even take Christian artists seriously. Why would we think the world takes them seriously? Philosophy? You can be a Christian philosopher in this world now? No, we're relegated to the back seat. So, what I'm, why am I telling you that? To discourage you? No, to just get it out of the way. It's already been done. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. Now you can speak with freedom. Because the only way from there is up is for them to, maybe their opinion of you to improve. Because it's already about as bad as it's going to be. And so, so um, he is warning them to not take matters into their own hands, to not see this kingdom as theirs to build. And so he tells them to do exactly what he is about to do, which is to turn to the Father in prayer. And then he withdraws from them, indicating that there's a time that just needs to be him and his Abba Father. And he kneels down, which is not a detail that needs to be missed, because most of the time you would stand and pray with your eyes uplifted to heaven. Now, why would he kneel? Well, under the gravity of the situation... It bent him to the earth. And it goes on later to talk about him praying in agony. I don't know about you. Have you ever prayed in agony? I, mean, I don't know that I have, really. I've cried out. I've been angry. I've punched against what I thought was my beliefs on God. I've kicked against the goads. But I don't know that I have ever really prayed in agony over redemption. And so here Christ, in kneeling to the ground, again, exposes his humanity as he is being bent to the earth under the weight of what is coming. And in kneeling, he says, Father. You think that's an incidental detail? So who's he talking to? Why do you think he would use that term Instead of most graciously heavenly sovereign of all created things who can move mountains, no, he says, Father. This is the cry of a child of the Father who is seeking him in a moment that only he in his sovereignty can respond to. This shows us very clearly the Trinity is not fractured. Not even in the weight of what is happening in the humanity of Christ. And then he goes on to say some of the words that have plagued us in many respects as to what do they really mean. He says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now we don't have enough time to, to fully unpack all of the different views on what that cup may in fact be. 
probably the majority view in our circles is that it is, he's asking for the cup of God's wrath, which is going to be drained in him to the dregs, as the psalmist writes, to potentially, if there's another way for him not to have to be separated from God his Father, may it be so. Other views might say that he's asking that that the redemptive story as it is unfolding since he has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, that actually what is happening is he's asking God to not let him die sooner than is necessary for this to be completed. On either side, because the text doesn't all the way tell us, now does it, what this cup is in its entirety, on either side are the more important words that come next. However, not my will but your will be done. Now, so that you recognize this isn't just some bare petition. In the other Gospels, how many times does he ask for this thorn to be removed or whatever it is, this cup to pass? Or He goes again and again. Three times over, he prays. And it's in great agony, as this text tells us. The other texts, I don't think, display the agony aspect. And and in fact, we know that the other texts do not contain what happens as he is praying in agony such that his sweat, and again, there's some differing opinions, either his sweat was just really, really large and thick, or it may have even contained some portion of blood, which we know physiologically can happen under extreme duress. You can get this kind of serious sanguinous fluid come from your pores which is part of your blood. But what we do know is that he did not take what was happening lightly. And then in great agony, he cried out to his father. And in this moment, beautifully, what happens? His father answers, either in whole or in part, but either way, he sends an angel to strengthen the Lord our, our Savior. But as the Lord stands, sword outstretched over his son in the garden, he still lovingly sends encouragement, even though there must come a reckoning. And so we see beautifully this angel minister to the Lord our God, which again indicates his humanity and indicates our need and necessity to access the same. Many of you have had to face and may even be facing at this time some very difficult decisions for both good or ill. My question to you is where will you turn? What what is it that you seek to access in those moments? Are you praying to the Abba Father whom you know is good and longs to give his children good gifts? Or are you praying to the God who lurks in darkness in the back of the universe who can only be addressed in superlatives as if he had never come near you at all? And only longs to hear your prayers so he can take greater joy in saying to you, no. Which God do you pray to? Are you praying to the sovereign Lord who controls all things for his glory and our redemption? Or do you pray to the impotent God who's out of control and can't make anything happen good and and just is going, well, I I would if I could, guys. 
the God of why do bad things happen to good people? And so we see that, as J.C. Ryle will say to us, and J.C. Ryle, as you may remember from last week and may know from the book Holiness, uh, was an English preacher and was, um, uh, said things sharply at times but beautifully. And I love his perspective here on the garden. He says, And prayer is the receipt which the Son of God himself was not ashamed to use in the days of his flesh. In the hour of his mysterious agony, he prayed, Let us take care that we use our master's remedy. If we want comfort in affliction, whatever other means of relief we use, let us pray. Now, the older I've gotten and the longer I've gone, um, I'm not asking less questions. I may even be asking more. But I have also discovered that prayer is truly an incredibly powerful thing for both the soul and my sanctification and my ability to trust in the sovereignty of God. Now, lest you think it is some sort of talisman, do you think he has answered every prayer I have prayed in the way that I have prayed it and asked? No. No, he hasn't. And in fact... I think I may have learned more in the times that he said no than in the times that he's answered the prayer yes. And I know for a fact in the times that he's told me to wait, I have learned more than I have ever learned when he straightaway said yes. Though I give him praise when he does say yes, amen? I'm not looking just to suffer for suffering's sake, mind you. I'm not a masochist, despite what you see me reading on Facebook and Instagram. All right, let's turn back to the text and look at just two short verses as he finds the disciples not having done what he had told them to do. 45 says, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, with what partial understanding they had of what was unfolding why in the world would it put them to sleep for sorrow? Well, remember at the end of the Passover, there arose a great discussion about who it was that was going to betray Christ. Remember, he said, one of you will betray me. He doesn't necessarily point him out now, does he? So it leaves him questioning. But interestingly, if you read the account in the Gospel of Luke, what's the next discussion they have? Well, uh, who do you think is going to betray Jesus? Well, I have a better question. Which one of you do you think is the greatest? Interesting that it would transition so quickly from being concerned about who would betray Christ and shift so quickly into, but who do you think will be the greatest once he's gone? And then from there, for Christ to turn to Peter and say, Simon, Simon, Satan has called for you to sift you like wheat. But I pray that your faith will hold, and when you return, strengthen the brothers. And Simon says, in true Peterian fashion, Ha! I would go to jail or die with you. Do you think he had any earthly idea what he was saying? 
No, he doesn't. Because then Jesus says, I guarantee you this. Before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. Three times over. And so here they've been through all this stuff, and then they have this discussion about what are they to carry, and there's two swords, and that's enough, and knapsacks and bags, and there's all kind of stuff. It's just a swirl of it's not what it was, and they can probably feel something in the night that is electric. And so they, not knowing exactly what's going to happen, know that something is uncertain. And in the middle of their uncertainty, they can't even stay awake and use the tool that they were called to use. So here we see firmly displayed the humanity of the disciples apart from the redemption of Christ. And I can't tell you how many times I have slept from sorrow. I went through a season of what's called dystonic depression. Now, if you know what dystonic depression is, it's just a fancy way of saying I could show up for work and do what I needed to do, basically, but when I wasn't occupied with something, I spent vast amounts of time sleeping. And the way that I viewed it is, I was taking the hands of the clock, and I was just pushing them in great big leaps forward. If enough time passed, this will get better. Is that true? Does time really heal all wounds? Do you think that time has healed the wound of the loss of my third child? Should time erode away that reality? That's that's crazy that we have allowed ourselves to be fooled into thinking that there are some things that are not worthy of our grief between the now and the not yet until Christ returns. It is absolutely an insane idea that is thoroughly Western that is thoroughly American, that we should be able to get over certain things. Now, am I saying that should lay in a heat and blubber all the time? No. But watching my Uncle Randy suffocate to death should never, ever, ever, ever go away from hurting me. What I would have to become in order for that to happen is truly the Nietzschean Superman. And that would not be good. So, as the disciples are struggling for sorrow and they're showing their humanity, notice that Jesus in great grace, he doesn't kick them or slap them or tell them to go back and get away from him because they disgust him because they couldn't even for one hour pray with him. No, what does he say? In great grace, he calls them again to make use of the means of that which he has made use of just previously. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes says, who is um, a scholar from Wheaton College um, who wrote a volume on Luke. He says, the disciples had been so eager to fight God's war with man's weapons, but they now fumbled with a more essential weapon, prayer. Their immediate failures would quickly be there for all to see, their silly use of the sword, their wholesale desertion, and denial by the bravest of them all. Again, we see that in our humanity, and left to our own metaphysical devices, we don't have a whole lot to offer now, do we? So again, I ask you, what do you, what do you turn to when preparing to deal with a difficult situation? What is your weapon of choice? 
to deal with things that are hard or difficult. So often, it isn't prayer, is it? Because we think that just, even those of us who know, I've prayed and seen God move in amazing ways, and yet still, it's almost like I have to reconvince myself anew in a difficult circumstance that it's true and it works. Now, why do you think that would be? Well, I'm not yet glorified. I am not yet perfected. And there's something that sanctifies me each time I have to go back and again confess that this is the better way. It doesn't prove that the method and means is not very good. Let's turn back to the text and see the conclusion. Verse 47. While he, being Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd... And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now, why do you think that Luke felt the need to tell us again that Judas was one of the twelve? There's some weight in those words, isn't there? That one of the twelve could do Jesus this way. And he gets worse. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Why do you think he would kiss him? What do you think is pregnant within that moment? What would a kiss have meant in that culture and society? It would have meant not just greeting, but it also meant honor. Which is why Jesus says to him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why do you think Jesus said that? Well, was he just being cruel so that when Judas would bust open and have his guts fly everywhere, that it would, the last thought going through his mind would be that? No, Jesus is extending to Judas one more time the offer of grace. And this is why he uses the term, would you betray the, not just me, not just Jesus, that you would betray the Son of Man which is a very, very pregnant term. Notice Judas's response. What is it? He is resolute in receiving his condemnation, as are too many. And he goes on, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And they wait for Jesus' answer, right? No, not Peter. Peter says, we don't have these two swords for nothing. I mean, might as well use them. So what does he do? And one of them, which we know is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. There are some commentators that say, fortunately for Malchus, which is the servant of the high priest, Peter's aim wasn't very good. Because chances are he wasn't trying to be precise and just nicking his ear. He was trying to cut his head off, probably. And so tell me what would happen if... They had succeeded in overtaking this mob, slaughtering Judas, and setting Jesus free. What would Rome have done? They would have seen it as a terroristic guerrilla action that needed to be suppressed with extreme prejudice. And instead of the kingdom of God coming in the way that God had designed... You now have another kingdom that is unfolding that is not the kingdom of God. But fortunately, there's sovereignty in our Lord God. And Jesus' words are enough to put a stop to it. He says, but Jesus said, no more of this. 
He had just in 21 told them that the kingdom of God would not be won with the sword. And yet where did Peter, who had not prayed, who had been sleeping for sorrow, totally unprepared, half asleep, wigs out and whacks off somebody's ear. Placing everything at risk were it not for the sovereignty of the Lord our God. And he, being Jesus, touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day by the temple, in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. What's going on here? Again, Jesus is exposing the nefarious aspects of what's happening. This kangaroo court that is unfolding, that is uh, an ends that justifies the means. See, these folks were willing to break the law in order to deal with what they felt like was the most dangerous lawbreaker of all. Does that make sense? Where have we heard this before? Enron? Our government most of the time? Us most of the time? You on your job most of the time? Ends justify the means? I just, I got, I got to do this because it's got, I just got to get through this and then, I, then I'm going to be better and then I'm going to change and I'm going to never do that kind of stuff again. But it's what I got to do to get through today because I am sovereign. I am in control. Unwilling to honor the one who truly is. So Jesus is pointing out to them the nature of their hearts. If I truly were who uh, you all say that I am, why didn't you just arrest me in the, in the temple? Because you've got the evidence, right? I am truly what you say I am, right? Notice they don't have much to say. And then he says these words, which again evidence the sovereignty of the Lord our God. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So he's saying, this is the time that was appointed for you. Notice his posture, how different it is than when he knelt in the garden. Under the weight as he wrestled with his father, notice that he is standing, resolute, not running, receiving the fullness of God's will for whatever cup it was that had not passed from him. He rose to meet his fate, strengthened in the crucible prayer. Notice the disciples, and we'll see how they respond next week, at least one of them uniquely. Notice how their lack of prayer, their failure to use what it was that the Lord had given them to strengthen them, turns into creating a sense of panic and denial and brokenness and sinful taking up of the sword, and seeking to use their own means. Listen at what, and this guy's French, he's a French theologian, so there's the southern way to pronounce his name, and then there's the French way to pronounce his name, and I'm going to give you both, and I'm probably going to butcher one of them. Southern way to say this guy's name is old Henry Blocker. I suspect that his name is Henri Blachet. But I could be wrong even there as well. But he wrote a book called Evil and the Cross. Now, it's, if you're philosophical, this, it's, it's a wonderful 130-page volume on 
evil, the nature of evil, and the philosophy of evil, and how the cross overcomes this. Actually, a, a wonderful volume. But he says this, and, and you, you may be thinking, well, this is about the cross. Well, but that's where we're going. But it applies here. He says, at the cross is revealed how his, Jesus' kingdom, comes about. Not by might of weaponry or by power of worldly means, but by spirit of sacrifice. Not by subjection of multitudes to slavery in the manner of the great rulers of this world, but by the service of the Son of Man. For the kingdom is not of this world. So having said that, how much of what you are doing with your life is building a kingdom of this world? using this world's means versus using the means of the true kingdom of God, which is not of this world. Now, let me give you a couple of possibilities. Again, for some of you, this translates into your work life. You, in your work life, think that there are certain things that you have to do in order to progress and, and, and succeed and do certain things that are clearly the machinations of this world. Underhanded things, little white lies, all of these kinds of things. You think it is up to you to progress and control that. Is that true? No, it is not. I'll give you an example from my own life. Not that I am holy, because I went kicking and screaming on this one. But there came a time when I worked, I was a physical therapist, when I worked at Ortho Georgia, which was the largest um, orthopedic group in Macon. And um, we were moving into a brand new building and the, the department was expanding and they had come to me because I was the only physical therapist and said, hey, look, we want you to be the director. Okay? And so I was like, great, that sounds awesome because I'm going to make more money. I can pay off my school loan. There's lots of blessing in that. And so, um, not two days later, in fact, I think it was three days later, which I won't put too much on the symbolism of said three days, but they came to me and said, hey, yeah, you're not going to be the director. We've hired a guy. You should be happy about that. His name's Jeff Catellus. I was like, no, I'm not happy about that at all. And they said, well, we heard you're in seminary and you probably won't even be here in a year. Well, just so you know, that was about seven years ago. And so somebody had undermined me in an attempt to create the opportunity for that person to become the director over everything. And in doing so, all she managed to do was to create this opportunity for someone else, this guy named Jeff Catellus. So Jeff comes in, and he don't like how we do anything, so he changes everything, which you got to, if you know me at all, I just loved. Um, and one of the things, though, that I did put my foot down on was he messed with the temperature control in the office. My wife can tell you, you change that thing by one degree, and I'm like, I have some sort of weird connection to temperature and taste, and I know it. Like, she tried to sneak in some Splenda on some sweet tea one time, spit that junk out. Don't, don't sneak up on me like that. All right, so, so Jeff tried to mess with the control, and Jeff, it was funny to hear Jeff tell the story later on. He said, I genuinely thought you were going to throw me through the window over the temperature control. But what was interesting is I served under him for uh, probably five years. And, and Jeff essentially um, is a, he's a funny guy, but he's very much like um, Michael Scott from The Office, if anybody knows that reference. And so, uh, so anyway, but what was interesting is in that time, Jeff became a believer. And one of the reasons that he cites that he became a believer was watching me who 
received what it was that seemed to be my fate in grace and kindness. And I worked very hard for Jeff. I helped him significantly, walked with him through a very dark period in his marriage. And so he said, man, watching you take what you didn't deserve. He said, even though I was a the guy they hired, you didn't, you didn't deserve it. You're, you deserve to be in charge. But you, you took it in such a way. And, and he said, now I know you bit your lip a whole bunch. And you probably punched walls in the back hallway and did, did that kind of stuff. And I did. Lest you think I'm holy, by the way. But what he saw was an example in Christ that was so tangible to him that it brought him to Christ in God's sovereignty and power. So why am I telling you that? Because let me tell you what it cost me. It cost me the ability to pay off my school loan. It's still not paid off, by the way. It still hangs over my head like a guillotine, it feels like, some days. But would I trade that for him? Not one iota. And could I have risen up in my strength and did some things? You bet I could. But I chose not to in that moment. Other times I failed, but that time I didn't. And I want to challenge you. Now, why do I bring work up? Well, work's something we all struggle with, and work, I think, is an area where we do this. The other area I want to bring up to you is parenting. Many of you, uh, many of us included, uh, parent in such a way that doesn't reflect that God is sovereign. And that God is the one who can, um, who really is in control of your children's lives. And this is a struggle, isn't it? Because there's the whole, we have a responsibility. These children have been given to us. You can't tell a five-year-old, well, live your own life, dude. I don't care. Make your own decisions. That's dumb, okay? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, check your heart and frequently ask, who is in control in parenting? And is some of the stressor that you may be experiencing as a parent a result of a poor belief in the sovereignty of God? And an even poorer praxis of prayer. Susan and I would not even still be alive, I don't think, if we had not prayed through some of the tensions and serious situations that went with our kids. And so I, wanna, I just want to point those two places out to you. Same thing for any of you who are in college or you're, you're postgraduate and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. Uh, the same applies to you as well. If God is not sovereign, you're going to make some real bad decisions potentially. And you want to be very careful as to how you seek those things out because you know as well as I do, and, and many of us can tell you, taking a really bad job or putting yourself in some bad situation can cost you years of your life. That includes getting married. So, hear me. Well, this applies to every aspect of your life. Use the means that the Lord, our God, saw fit to use in Gethsemane. To build a kingdom not made with hands, but built purely on the sovereignty of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, as we close out, I'm going to read you one last quote. This is Bruce Ware. So I give you an American theologian uh, who still currently teaches at uh, Southern in Kentucky. And this is a book he wrote on the humanity of Christ, which I and Jonathan Stuckert would also commend to you, called The Man Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, every opportunity given us by God, either to obey or to disobey, is an opportunity for that character formation and strengthening of faith that can prepare us for the greater challenges of faith God has in mind for us in the future. Clearly, this was true for Jesus. 
Jesus' training ground of tested faith, and he's speaking of Gethsemane, by the way, is the same kind of training that the Father designs for us. Most of the time when I counsel people that have fallen back into some sort of repetitive sin, that, whatever that is, is merely a symptom. See, their failure had been slouching toward Bethlehem for either weeks or months or years because they have been utterly anemic in their personal worship and devotion. See, what you have no earthly idea of is by you not engaging in the means of grace that the Lord has given to you, prayer, study of the word, uh, sacraments, all those things, by you not engaging in them, you have no earthly idea what you're setting yourself up for. You have no idea what's coming around the bend. Now, am I saying that uh, as one who is caustic? Am I, you know, prepare yourself for the worst? Am I a doomsday prepper in a sense? No. No, I'm not. Because you may not even be prepared for the good things that are coming. And so, this is the more I go, the more I realize that the vast majority of failure on people's parts of epic proportions, the seed was sown long before. So hear me. Begin this Lord's Day. A robust praxis of prayer and honoring the Lord and, and engaging in study of the Word on a regular basis so that you would be strengthened for what will come in the days ahead, both good and bad, so that you would not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, so that when the storms come in and blow, you are not swept from the rock on which you thought you were standing. So, how do we apply this? Jesus Christ and his humanity at Gethsemane reveals to us the need to pray to God our Father, who is good. If he turned to him in his hour of greatest need, so should we. The need to submit to God's sovereign will because he's faithful to bring about redemption. See, that's the thing I think sometimes we're afraid of, is we're afraid we're going to get left holding the bag, whatever that bag is. No, how many times has God shown his faithfulness and his goodness? which is why we should celebrate and remember often. Jesus also teaches us the personal cost of taking on our sin and receiving of God's wrath. If he, if he would ask for the cup to pass, how much more should we be thankful that it has passed? The strength and resolve also that come from submissive prayer is what we are taught as we face life between the now and the not yet, where things are not yet perfect. So Christ has taught us, church, Christ's community, pray. Let's do that now. Father, thank you for Christ's example of his humanity in Gethsemane. Thank you for the disciples' example so that we could see such a stark contrast in how Jesus, who was faithful to pray, was able to rise to meet those who would kill him in your will. And yet the disciples were unable to rise and meet and took up the tools of the kingdom of this world instead of accessing the tools of your kingdom. God, may we learn from their mistake. May we learn from Christ's example. May we long to be known for being a, a church that people would say of Christ's community that we are a church that prays if nothing else. God, I pray that you would stir within us to consider to to continue to consider who is in control and how you, by, 
by virtue of being sovereign, have ensured that we would know you as Abba Father. So I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who does not yet know you as the God who loves them, who gave Christ to die on their behalf, to absorb the fullness of their sins and your wrath on their behalf, I pray that your spirit will be so gracious and kind as to move to give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone so that the sword that is unsheathed would not remain over them any longer. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.